Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. How y'all doing? It's good to see you. You know, if you've been with our church for any amount of time, you know that there is a saying that I don't know if it originated with Pastor Terry. I know he says it a lot, um, that God wrote a book. And, you know, this book is the Bible, the Word of God, and it's not just an, any ordinary book. It is the most amazing and miraculous book that has ever been written. One book composed of 66 individual books that was written across 40 different continents, I'm, I'm sorry, by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Uh, the authors of this book were shepherds, kings, fishermen, and educated professionals over the span of 1,500 to 1,800 years. And the thing that makes this book so amazing and so miraculous is that all 66 books have one central theme, and they have one scarlet thread that goes through the entire book from Genesis to Revelation that runs to the foot of the cross, that leads and points to the finished work and to the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's what this book does. It's, it's so amazing. And our plan as a church has been to go through all 66 books, to preach overview messages, bringing out the main themes of each book and showing how it relates to Jesus. And this morning, I've got a special treat for you. We're going to be in the book of Leviticus. Amen? How many of you guys would say, that is my favorite book? All right, Micah, good. This book teaches you not to lie. But, you know... This book can get a bad rap. I've often thought of this book sometimes as the grim reaper of Bible reading plans. You know what I'm talking about? You start at the beginning of the year in Genesis. Everything is going great. You get midway through Exodus. It's great. And then you come to Mount Sinai. That's where God starts giving out his law. And that's where he brings about this, these uh, rules and regulations on how to build this thing called a tabernacle. I've got a picture of, of it up here. Uh, you can see this, this is a uh, picture of what it might would have looked like. This was a portable temple that uh, the Israelites were to offer sacrifices and to worship the Lord while they were in the wilderness. It's probably 75 feet wide by 100 feet, 150 feet long. That thing that looks like a piece of chocolate cake, that's actually the tabernacle. And it would have been uh, about 15 feet wide by 45 feet deep. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But the point I'm trying to get at is that when you're reading through the Bible, if you make it through the middle way of Exodus and begin to struggle and somehow make it to the end of Exodus, Leviticus is going to finish you off, isn't it? And you'll stop reading until next year when you try again. And you know, the problem with Leviticus is not Leviticus. I want to make that clear this morning. This is the word of God. This book actually has gone from being my 66th book to in my top five books of the Bible. Yes, Todd, 
top five books of the Bible. The problem is not the book of Leviticus, it's the way we approach it. It's a book that has little narrative in it, and it's filled with all these details and instructions concerning things like offerings and sacrifices, unkosher foods, and things that we have to do to make a worshiper clean ceremonially before the Lord. These things kind of seem strange to the Western mind. They, sometimes they seem unrelatable. But I want to just say that the problem is not the book of Leviticus. It's the way we approach it. It's not meant to be studied like the book of Proverbs or the Gospels or the Epistles. This book was actually written to a group of men called Levites under the Old Covenant. And it's not meant for us today to try to live out most of what is, is uh, written here. It's, it's not to be lived out under the new covenant. I like how Skip Heitzig says it. He says, Leviticus has a sort of planned obsolescence. It wasn't made to last. Actually, it's, it points to Jesus. It's a shadow of better things to come in Jesus. And so I want to emphasize this morning that the book of, of, of Leviticus is an awesome book. And I will also want to emphasize that without it, you cannot, you will not, and you must not try to understand the rest of Scripture without this significant book. It's kind of like trying to understand the Avenger movies. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Avengers, but there's like 2,000 Avenger movies. And when I was growing up, most of these superheroes were in my comic books and stuff, but for some reason, I don't remember them being so politically correct and involved in, in their message. It was get the bad guys, put them in jail, save the world. So anyway, that's another message. But there's one Avengers movie that comes on called End Games. And it comes on, I've seen it because it's free and it's on TV and it you know, has the commercials with it. And I've watched it. I think it's cool, the graphics and everything, but there's a lot of things. My kids have watched a lot of the Avengers movies, good or bad, and they will, they'll say, oh, that's so good, that's so good. And I'm sitting there going, that doesn't make any bit of sense to me. And they said, Dad, you need to watch all the Avenger movies. I said, I don't have enough uh, space left in the hard drive to watch all of them. I will not remember what I uh, uh, watched. And so they said, well, okay, at least watch Infinity Wars, which is the movie right before this one. So I watched it. I was like, oh, okay, that's what that means. And I watched it. Uh, I still don't like Avengers, but I, when I got to end games, I watched it again. I went, oh, that's what the glove is. Thanos, ah, y'all are like, some of you are like that. That's what the five stones mean. Some of y'all are going to know it's six stones. And I knew that. I was just testing you, okay? Making sure you're paying attention. Uh, but anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, is that Infinity Games or Infinity Wars, sorry guys, I misquoted the scriptures, uh, in the same way, it's kind of like Leviticus. If we're going to understand the end times, the end game, we've got to understand what God has reveals to us in the book. And so if we will study Leviticus, um, it's a difficult book to study. I'm not going to disagree with that. But if we, we, we will study it in the right way, it will open up the rest of the scriptures for us. It will make Jesus come to life, and we will see Jesus more clearly and see how he fulfills the book of Leviticus. So my 
my goal this morning is to help us to connect some dots that maybe you've not connected and also to whet our appetites to make us want to get into the book of Leviticus and see Jesus. So before we get into Leviticus, I got a couple of things I want to remind us. And this is number one, that God deeply desires to have fellowship with his people. We need to remember that as we're moving forward. This is from the beginning of Genesis. He's always wanted to have a people that he has, has fellowship with. And last week in Exodus 19, God reminds the Israelites, after he brings them out of, uh, out of Egypt, he says, don't forget that, that he bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself to be his treasured possessions that he takes out from among all the nations. God wants to have a relationship with us. But the second thing we need to remember is that God's people need to be holy in order to do that. And that means because we're not holy because of our sin, it means that we need to deal with this thing called sin, which prohibits us from having fellowship with this holy God. And so when it comes to sin, Leviticus addresses, the, we're going to get into Leviticus, Leviticus in just a second, but it addresses two things that we also need to be aware of, is that sometimes we can take sin too lightly. It's going to address that. You don't want to take sin too lightly. You, we can sometimes think it's not that bad, or we can think, make it, uh, think of ourselves more highly than we should. The, the disciples did that, didn't they? When they're going to the cross, uh, when Jesus is going to the cross, they're like arguing which one of us is the most important disciple. They didn't see their sin rightly. The second faulty view that we can have is that we can make more of our sin than we should, that it's too great to be forgiven, allowing our sins, allowing our failures, those feelings of guilt to drive us away from God instead of to him. Just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, when they sinned, they hid from God and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, which is a picture of us trying to cover ourselves with the works of our hands. So we want to avoid those two views and Leviticus deals with those views that God is holy, we are not, but he has made a way where we can be so that we can have fellowship with him. That's the theme of this book. So with that in mind, let's jump into chapter one, verse one, and I'm going to read the entire book to the end. Just kidding. Leviticus 1.1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the, the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, in order to enter into God's presence, as I've already said, we have to be holy. We have to be pure. And so God begins in chapter 1 with the sacrifice of an unblemished bull offered on a bronze altar. I want you to look at this picture again of the tabernacle. The first thing that right there at the bottom is the entrance into the outer court. And the first thing that you would see when you entered into 
the area, of, uh, uh, the outside of the tabernacle or the courtyard would be this bronze altar. This is where all the, whenever you hear about offerings, whenever you hear about grain offerings, this is where it would have taken place. So right when you walk in, you would see animals being slain, their blood coming out, uh, being put to death. This was kind of like a, a slaughterhouse covered in blood. And this is a bloody book. I'm not going to uh, try to act like it's not. Blood is, is mentioned at least 87 times. And the reason that it's in there is because it's meant to remind us of the seriousness of sin. Sin, if it's left unchecked in our lives, will kill us. It will destroy us and those who we come in contact with. And God wants his people he wants us to understand that there is a cost for sin to be atoned for. It says in the scriptures that the wages of sin is death. And so all the bulls and the goats and the rams that were sacrificed in this system were meant to be visible pictures for the people to see, to teach us that in order for sin to be paid for, to be atoned for, to be forgiven, something innocent had to die in the place of that person that was guilty. And so this, right off the bat, this sacrificial system of innocent animals, sacrificing innocent animals for guilty people, God is foreshadowing the sacrificial death of his innocent son for us guilty people to make us holy. This is already pointing us towards Jesus. Now, just to give a quick uh, layout of the book, chapters 1 through 17, they reveal how we are to draw near to God uh, in, uh, in his holiness. And there are five offerings that God gives us in the first five chapters. Three of them are optional or voluntary offerings. You didn't have to bring them, and they are to be offered with joy, joyful and overflowing hearts of worship. This is the, the walk that we should have as Christians today. Voluntary worship. They mirror how our, our relationship with God should be today. It, it reminds us of Roman, Romans 12, doesn't it? Where it says that we are to present, to willingly present ourselves to God in light of what he's done for us. We're to willingly present ourselves to him as what? Holy sacrifices, right? Living uh, acceptable to God. And so these offerings, these first three that, that we're just going to go over real quickly are the offerings of worship that are, are to be given in gratitude. The first is the whole burnt offering. This would have been the most expensive offering given because unlike some of the other offerings where you could offer it and then the priest would get some of the food from it or you could take it back with you and have some of the food, nobody got anything from this offering. It was the whole burnt offering. It was totally consumed by the fire and given to the Lord. And it's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to fully surrender our lives to the Lord. The grain offering consisted of wheat or barley that was mixed with oil and salt, and, and you were not allowed to have any yeast or honey in it. It was uh, a voluntary act of wor worship that acknowledged God's provision. Then we have the peace offering. I think this might be, of the three offerings, this might be my favorite one, because uh, I like to call it the, the I just want to bring an offering offering because it was, it was not done out of obligation. It was given out of thanksgiving. And only a portion of it was burned up, of the animal or of the grain was burned up, and the rest was given back to the worshiper. 
And you know what, what, what they did with it? They would take it home and share it with their family. They would share it with their friends. And they would also use it to provide for the poor in the community. So I love uh, the peace offering. Now, the last two offerings were obligatory offerings. Number one, the sin offering. And this was offered when a person sinned unintentionally by breaking one of the Lord's commandments and later realized his guilt. He would bring a sin offering. And then the guilt offering is if you unintentionally harmed your neighbor or someone, you had to first make a restoration of what you uh, took or stole from that person or harm them in before you could take this guilt offering. Now, I want to point out something in Leviticus 22, verse 20. Look what it says the offering has to be like. He says, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. In other words, God will not accept anything that's blemished. God is saying, look, do not bring me your leftovers. Don't bring me your throwaways. I want your best. And you know, sometimes church, we can be guilty, can't we, of bringing God our leftovers, giving God our leftover time, our leftover resources, our leftover affections. And you know, sometimes church, we can be guilty of giving God the things that are we no longer want. You know what I'm talking about? Like things that are cluttering up our home in the spring that we bring out. We're like, well, that's, that's kind of in the way. Let's donate it to the church. Or how about donating the broken down car or the old couch because you just bought you a new one for yourself. And so we'll donate that to the church. Sometimes we can be guilty of this. And here God is saying, I want your best. I want your very best. Why is that? I think there's at least three reasons that he wants our best. Number one, it's because he is the best. God is the best. And he just deserves it. I mean, just plain out, God deserves our best. The second is, I think, from his perspective, is that he wants something from us. He doesn't want the offering. He wants our hearts. And Jesus says, you know, that wherever your heart, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So when, we, when, he, when Jesus is our treasure, when God is our treasure, we're going to want to give him the best. It'll be a, a voluntary overflow from our hearts. But I think the third reason that he wants us to do this is because us giving our best is a picture of what he was going to do when Jesus came. He gave us his best. Remember when John the Baptist is introducing Jesus to the crowds? He points at him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God. Behold, God's best. He's offering his best offering to us. And so I think what God is, he's, again, he's foreshadowing Jesus when he's saying, give me your best. So chapters 1 through 7 reveal the need to bring a sacrifice to God. And then chapters 8 through 10 reveal who can bring the offering to God. God makes it clear that, that people were not allowed to just casually approach him and, and to bring their altar to him without a mediator. And so he sets aside priests who had a specific kind of gene. They had specific kinds of genes. You know what they were? Levi jeans. Wait for laughters to subside. You know that's good. That's really good. 
I didn't make that up, by the way. That's why it's good. But they were from, (laughs) you had to have the genetics of a Levi. You had to be born a Levi uh, from the tribe of Levi. (laughs) All right, let's move forward here. And before presenting these offerings, they had to go through this ordination service that the priest did where their sins were atoned for in order to make them ceremonially clean. Let's look at Leviticus 8, verse 24. It says, Then Moses presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes, look at this, on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toe of their right feet, and Moses threw the blood against the altars. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Why did uh, blood have to be put on the ear, the thumb, and the big toe? Well, it was to symbolize the role of the priest. The blood was put on the right ear because he was to um, hear God's voice. It was put on his thumb because he was to do God's will. It was put on his big toe because he was to walk in the ways of God. I think that's a great Great symbolism that's shown there. And so God sets Aaron's sons, God sets Aaron apart to be holy for him, to hear his voice, to do his will, to walk in his ways. But you know what? Right out of the bat, right out of the gates, they fail to do this. At least two of them do. Let's look at Leviticus 10, verse 1. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized, you might have a translation that says strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, what is this unauthorized fire that uh, is being described here in Leviticus uh, 10? Some... uh, Modern-day pastors, I think, would try to apply it to the bass guitar or drums or maybe the type of, of music that we play or, or sing, uh, hymns, uh, or whether or not you do liturgy. Maybe it's a specific translation of the Bible. They're, they would say, that's strange fire. I don't think that's a good application. There's some that would say that uh, maybe what happened is these two sons disobeyed the command not to drink alcohol before they went on duty, and they got drunk, and they went before the Lord, um, and the Lord uh, struck them down. Um, The truth is, we don't know what this strange fire is. But what we do know is that God, they did something that in worship that God, to bring to him, that God did not tell them to do. And the point is that when God says something, he means it. They approached to worship God in a way that he had not prescribed. And so when we uh, seek to approach God, he has made it clear. Listen, New Testament church, he's made it clear to us that when we approach him, we must approach the way that he prescribed, and that is through his son Jesus, isn't it? You must come to me in spirit and truth through the spirit, through the son of God. And in other words, all other worship. God will reject. Now, in chapters 11 through 15, we're not going to go into these, but these deal with clean and unclean animals, diagnosing skin diseases and mildew and body, bodily discharges and, and the required um, purifications that had to, be, had to go through in order to make people ceremonially clean. 
And then in chapter 16, we come to the great day of atonement. This is the heart, this is the central theme of Leviticus, and it reveals, and this is why it's a central theme, it reveals how we are or how we can approach a holy God. Now, instead of this being a day of rejoicing and celebration, it was uh, meant to be a day of mourning, uh, contemplating your sin, confessing your sin before the Lord. And it was the one day of the year when a human being, which is the, the, the high priest, he could enter the Holy of Holies. I think I've got another picture of it. Now, again, the, uh, the tabernacle is that brown chocolate thing looking. And we've got an, I've got an overview, a bird's eye view of it on the next page. I hope you can see this. But the, the tabernacle was split into two, two sections. The front section was the holy place. This is where only priests could go, and they would, they would bring blood with them, and they would do sacrifices and things that are specified in the books, uh, in the books of the law. And there, that red line there re, uh, represents the veil, and it separated the holy place from the most holy place. That, and back there was the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where the presence of God's glory would reside. And so once a year, and only once a year, the high priest would go back there in the presence of God to deal nationally with the sins of the people. And so the high priest, he was required to cleanse himself. He was um, with water, and this would have been done in that basin on the outside of, of the tabernacle. Then he would put on his holy garments, and he would take a bull and two goats from the congregation, and he would take the bull and sacrifice it and take his blood and put it in a basin. He would sacrifice one of the goats, and he would take both bowls of blood into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle the blood of the bull for his sins and to cleanse the tabernacle, and he would take the goat's blood, which represented the sins of the people, and he would sprinkle both of these bloods on the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant. After that, he would come out, he would take the other ram, I mean, the other goat, which was also known as, does anyone know what it was called? The scapegoat. If you've ever heard the, that term, hey, you're making me a scapegoat, you're blaming me for something I didn't do, that's where this came from because he would put his hands on the, the head of this goat and confess the sins of the people on the, the head of this goat, transferring them onto this goat. They would then take this goat outside of the tabernacle, outside of, of where the, the people were living, way out into the wilderness, and they would let it go, never to see it again. And this symbolized that their sins had been removed from them, at least for that year never to see them again. And, and there's some weaknesses that this system has had. It's, you had to do it year after year after year. You had to keep being reminded of your sin year after year after year. So that's why I love Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Listen to what the Word of God says. But when Christ, when Jesus appeared, when he came down to earth as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy 
places. He entered into the tabernacle, not made with hands. Not by means, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, what this is, um, let me just tell you what this says, because I had to read it 2,000 times when I was in college to understand it. What it's saying is, if the blood of goats could make you ceremonially clean, that's what these sacrifices did, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When we put our trust, our faith in the the work of Jesus and his blood, the Holy Spirit takes that and cleanses our consciences and says, you don't have to work anymore to to get God's approval. Jesus has already done it all. So you're no longer working dead works. You're free to serve him from your heart to give him offerings that are not obligatory, but that are voluntary. And one of the things I want us to see here is that unlike the high priest who needed to make atonement for his sins with the blood of a bull, Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice. That is the ultimate fulfillment of the day atonement through his blood. Now, something interesting about blood is in Leviticus 17, Uh, Verse 10, God says to his people, he says, I will set my face against anyone who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. And then verse 11, he says, for the life of of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, here God is telling his people, do not eat blood. Do not drink blood. We see that in the book of Acts. That was one of the, the things that they, the uh, council told the Gentiles, don't eat animals that have been strangled with their blood still in them. Uh, so, um, one of the reasons I think this is is because surrounding nations, they would eat and drink the blood of animals like an ox because they thought that doing that would give them the strength and vitality of the animal that they were, the blood that they were drinking. And God tells his people that he alone gives life and strength to his people, not the creation. And the Jews knew this. The Jews knew you don't eat blood, you don't drink blood. It would be detestable for them to do that. It would be detestable for most of us to do that today. But here's what, here's something I never have seen until up to my time studying this time through the book of Leviticus. Did you know, and you do know this, most of you know this, some of you know this, you might know this, in John chapter 6, verse 53, Jesus says to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This brings more light to me to understand why the people really got pulled back from him. A lot of people stopped following him at this point. Um, The question I I ask is, why did Jesus say this? He knows that you're not supposed to drink blood. Well, it's because he's speaking in the spiritual realm of faith 
He's saying life is in the blood, and my blood brings eternal life. So drink my blood by faith. Put your trust in me just as your ancestors put their faith in the sacrifices that were sacrificed on the altar. To me, that was just, I'd never seen that before, so I just wanted to share that. Uh, chapters, uh, while chapters 1 through 17 deal with how to draw near to God through sacrifice, chapters 18 to the end of the book teach the Israelites how to live holy lives set apart from the surrounding nations. That's Like I said at the beginning, God has always wanted to have a people who are set apart in our hearts, in our minds, in the way that we live our lives, that we are fully his, not trying to be like everybody around us. We want to be God's people, and that's what he, uh, the rest of the, of the book goes through. He, and he, in chapters 18 through 22, he deals with moral purity, warning the people, do not adopt the practices of the nations around you, lest the land vomit you out, just like it did them. In chapter 23, we come to seven holy uh, holidays and feasts. Uh, these were s- celebrations. A lot of times people don't think of the book of Leviticus as a uh, celebratory book, but God says, I want you to celebrate a lot. So you've got um, the Sabbath, the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booths. Now, any of you guys are backpackers or campers, you would love this one because you live in a tent for uh, seven days uh, and and celebrate with um, your other uh, relatives there having feasts for seven days. Chapter 25 is one of my favorite chapters because it talks about two Sabbaths, the year of Sabbath. This was um, a Sabbath that God said this, look, I want you to work for six years straight, hard. I want you to plow your fields. I want you to attend your vineyards for six years. And then, listen, on the seventh year, you don't have to work. You get an entire year off. And that means you don't go out into the field and sow seed. Um, you don't sow anything, you give the land a rest. And look, uh, now, I want you to think about that. How many of you would love to work for six years and then get a year off? You know what, I've been a pastor here for six years. (laughs) Some of y'all are like, go ahead and take it. But Leviticus 25, verse 20, this is what the people would have been thinking. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. You see, this is a miracle. Do not try to practice. Like I said, this is not meant to be practiced, okay? When you sow in the eighth year, Okay, at the end of the seventh year, when you sow, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So six years, the people were to sow and work their fields. And on the end of the sixth year, God would give uh, kind of a bumper crop. And they were to rest on the seventh year and live off the abundance. And I know this sounds good because we weren't called to do this. But that means you were not allowed in the spring to go out and plant seeds. What does that require? Faith. Faith. Trust God to rest from your labors. Hmm. 
What does that sound like? It sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Because it is. It's a picture of the gospel. Romans chapter 4, verse 4 says, Now to the one who works, the one who, in other words, seeks to please God through his works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who believes in Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith in Jesus is counted as righteousness. I love the year of Sabbath because it clearly points to the gospel, how we're to rest in Jesus, trust that he has a greater produce than we could ever produce with our own hands. The second one that I love to look at is uh, Leviticus 25.10, the year of Jubilee. Let's look at that in the scriptures, the year of Jubilee. It says, verse 10, he says, uh, you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So every 50 years, the Israelites were to celebrate a year of jubilee, a year when everyone, like the the year of Sabbath, they were to rest from that work, but there was something added to this at the, at the, uh, in the 50th year. All debts were canceled. All land was returned to its original owners. If you owned land and fell on hard times and had to sell it, you got that back in the year of Jubilee. Your family got that back, family-owned land. And then the third thing is all Israelite slaves were set free. Now, I want you to think about that. Some of you guys and and gals may be debt-free financially in this room, but most of us, I think, are probably not. What would you do if you were debt-free? didn't have credit card debt, didn't have student loans, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have a car payment. If you were totally debt-free, what would you do with the surplus that God gives to you? Would you go into, back out and go, go into debt? Would you use it for the Lord? Would you give it to others? Imagine what our country would be like if everyone was debt-free. I'm not saying that nobody owned property, but everyone was debt-free. Well, the year of Jubilee points to Jesus. And if you remember in Luke 4, when Jesus comes out of the wilderness and he begins his earthly ministry, what does he do? He goes into the synagogue, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of jubilee. So Jesus is saying that he is the spiritual fulfillment of the year of jubilee. He came to cancel our sin debt He has promised to give us new land, a a new heaven, and a new earth. And he has uh, promised to free us from the slavery of sin. And and I don't want to miss this one little nugget that's in this section here, which is amazing to me, is that God commanded that the year of Jubilee would begin with the sound of a loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. The 10th day of the seventh month. You know what that was? That was the day of atonement. And what this teaches or reminds us is that you can't have jubilee 
until you first have atonement. This is amazing um, teachings in the book of of Leviticus because they point to Jesus. And, And I just want to end this morning by saying I praise God for this book because it points us to Jesus, who is the fulfiller of these offerings and these promises and of these commandments. And because of him, we no longer are required to offer animal sacrifices and and follow these ceremonial laws in order to approach God. When Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies as our great high priest, with his blood, the veil was torn in two. And we all who have put our faith in him have become priests to be able to serve God, to come to him. through It's still through Jesus that we come directly to God. There is no longer an earthly priest that we must go through. Jesus is the fulfillment of the book of Leviticus. And I want to end with just this scripture from Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, because through Jesus we are able to approach the holy God. Amen? Amen.